You're listening to the Discriminology Podcast, the podcast that arms you with the knowledge and the tools to dismantle discrimination. With me, one of your hosts, Malik Selah. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Discriminology. I'm one of your hosts, Malik Silau, and I'm joined today by Steve Kramer and Sydney Penn. On today's episode, we will be discussing the model minority myth. The term is first coined by a sociologist named William Peterson in a New York Times Magazine article about Japanese Americans and applauded them for their ability to garner capital gains and success through their own efforts despite their racial backgrounds without demanding or doing any type of protesting making that reference in direct contrast to other minority groups within the United States. That being said, anti-Asian sentiment has spiked through the months of the pandemic. The Center of Study for Hate and Extremism published a report documenting the changes in hate crime patterns in 2020 in 16 American cities. According to this study, anti-Asian hate crimes have increased 149% in 2020, while overall hate crimes have decreased by 7% for other demographics. This surge has been more prevalent in New York through Q1 of 2021, increasing to 169%. That being said, the oppression of the AAPI community was not born during the pandemic. It has been a recurring issue throughout American history from yellow peril to Japanese internment. Seeing a model minority group or quote unquote model minority group being treated this way is hypocritical to say the least. We have a special guest here to join us to discuss this conversation, who Mr. Kramer will introduce. Hello, and welcome back. Today, we have Miss Jane Wong, who was born and raised in Hong Kong. She is fluent in oral and written Cantonese and Mandarin. She emigrated to Toronto, Canada in 1994 with her family and started attending the 10th grade at a Canadian high school. She holds a Master's of Arts degree in Social Personality Psychology from York University in Toronto, and was a research scientist for a psychoeducational test publisher in Toronto from 2009 to 2018, before moving to New York to pursue a doctoral degree in school psychology at St. John's University in August of 2018. She has presented at multiple, multiple professional conferences, such as the National Association of School Psychologists Annual Convention. She co-authored a book chapter with Dr. Samuel Ortiz from St. John's University titled Psychoeducational Assessment of Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Preschool Children. Most recently, her article in collaboration with Dr. Scott Meyer, a professor from the University of Buffalo, which explores the influence of the length of time a teacher has known a student, as well as student demographic variables such as gender and race, on teachers' ratings of students social emotional behaviors has been accepted for publication in the peer-reviewed journal contemporary school psychology without further ado we'd like to welcome jane today thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me and bring um, this issue to light uh, there's something very empowering uh, as an asian um, going through what is happening in our world these days uh, to be invited to share you know the thoughts about the topic of racism and to talk about our own experience in terms of how the news of Asians being attacked um, has affected them. 
Um, I thank you for holding this space um, and placing this trust in me <laughs> that I can facilitate a conversation and you know do we each do a part to help um, with the healing process uh, for the Asian community. You know, a community community that is really hurting right now. I also know how seriously you all take, um, you know, this discussion and, you know, all the prep work that you all put into um, behind, into this behind the scenes uh, for this podcast. So uh, thank you to you all. Oh, you're welcome. And, and again, thanks for being here. So um, one of the things we want to make clear to our audience is that the Asian community is far from being a monolith, that obviously members of the community have very different experiences and sentiments different arrival experiences to the United States, like all minority groups, you can't, certainly can't um, group everybody together. Uh, so al although we may be discussing certain specific events that happen to a specific group of Asian uh, population here in, in the United States, the Asian population as a whole has seen this uptick in crime. So first, uh, you know, we kind of just want to know how you're doing um, and how uh, you're dealing with the recent uptick and, and kind of what your feelings are, you know, in recent times, especially since so much has been uh, brought to national attention. I think my experience is a little different compared to some of the Asian Americans here because um, I moved to New York uh, two years ago, well, I think coming on three, um, to study here. And so I didn't really grow up as, um, you know, like some of the second generation Asian immigrants, um, you know, who are children of, you know, first generation immigrants, or there are, you know, first generation immigrants who they, they themselves um, immigrated to the U.S. And so, you know, like uh, Steve just mentioned that, you know, Asians are not a monolithic group. So we have different types of experience um, within the U.S. So for me, uh, you know, personally, as a person from Hong Kong, immig having immigrated to Canada as a teenager, and then, you know, um, you know, having lived in Canada for a while. So I didn't go through the, some of the, you know, I've read articles, uh, Asian American scholars have shared their experience growing up. Um, they recall, you know, other kids, and, you know, they've, uh, for example, hung out with uh, all their white American friends and you know at some point in their childhood they you know have other there are other kids who would you know pull up their eyes say slurs you know racial slurs so I didn't like fortunately I didn't grow up with that but I think I sense a huge difference since the uh, the pandemic um, in terms of how I personally feel when I, you know, go out on the street, you know, I've like, I think I, I have uh, experienced, you know, going to a grocery store, for example, and then having the, the cashier saying stuff like, you know, you, you guys brought it here, um, you, know, you guys brought COVID here, you know, uh, or, or, you know, they would talk to another Asian lady in front of me and uh, ask, oh, is that a, a Corona baby? Yeah, this, those things really get to me. Um, so that was more at the beginning of, you know, this this kind of rise in terms of hate crimes. Um, and then recently, you know, we all know that the numbers has like sharply increased. Um, there, there are many high profile hate crimes that are committed. And obviously it saddened me. And I also felt, you know, very angry about it. Um, I've cried. 
to the point where I, I realized I really needed to limit on, you know, I, I unfollow some of the, the accounts uh, on Instagram, for example, that shows pretty explicit content. I mean, they do have a warning. So it's like, if I follow them, you know, I, I know that I probably don't want to watch it, but, you know, it's there and I'm curious. And, and so I want to know what happened. So I, you know, I watch them and then I almost always regret watching it because it's just, it's just really, really hurtful. And I think also that kind of happened after the Black Lives Matter. And we all also saw a lot of very triggering images. Um, so, so, so I'm hurting, like in terms of like as a human being in general, of all the things that are happening, also like you know, the last four years in terms of the administration, and then now as an Asian living in America, not feeling safe. So, those are the some of the thoughts or feelings that that I've you know uh, come across. First of all, I think it's important that we that we express empathy for that. I mean. It must be a horrible feeling that you walk out every day and, and you don't feel safe in just going to the grocery store or like regular mundane activities like that. Thank you. In regards to the AAPI community at large, in comparison to other minority groups, there's less of a collective memory in regards to dismantling racism. And there's been more of a tendency to, I guess, not speak out as much or be like I've heard terms in my reading about not wanting to rock the boat or sentiments of that nature as opposed to when you compare it to the black community it's frowned upon in the opposite sense so I guess what I'm trying to ask is have you felt supported by your peers in the community have you felt a shift in terms of open activism um, against Asian hate and how have you observed any changes if if any at all uh, that's a great question. I see both. Um, so I guess, like, let me go back to the point about um, some of the, I guess, cultural values in a way. Um, uh, also, just kind of in general, there, there could be a little stereotype involved. Um, I think we'll get to that in a minute. But you also mentioned in the opening about the model minority myth, right? And so um, there is definitely that cultural value in terms of looking not rocking the boat because you know um, Asians um, are, tend to be from collectivist culture and that tends to be associated with you know the, the, the group um, the goodness of the group rather than individual you know uh, rights or, or, or happiness so you know the betterment of the group it's valued at way higher price and so um, one way to make sure that the group, you know, we're not rocking the boat or uh, to ensure that the group is going to, you know, be okay or good is to sometimes silence themselves. Um, uh, I'm not saying, again, we're not going to generalize that, every, you know, every Asian, you know, just going to be quiet, but there's definitely that pressure from within like you know, the culture. And then also I think from the larger society where there is this prominent, um, you know, a model minority myth um, that, you know, we're going to talk more, I'm sure, um, as we go on, um, that kind of uh, started in the 60s, where Asians are kind of, you know, thought to, you know, we would diligently work, um, we don't really need a lot of support, um, you know, we are able to kind of rise above all the challenges, despite being, um, you know, a minority. Um, and so, you know, there is that fear of not, you know, not wanting to speak up, 
But then also, there's also language barrier. Not, let's not forget a lot of Asians may not be fluent in English. You know, That's a great point. Right. So even if they are, um, you know, willing or I guess courageous enough to kind of speak up um, among their, their group, right, their in-group, can they still, can they break the barrier and, you know, speak to, uh, you know, more mainstream outlets at large? That That's probably going to be another barrier to really, you know, calling attention for, oh, you know, we're suffering. These are the problems that are happening, you know, and really the whole discrimination, I mean, it's the racial discrimination piece. It's not just, I think you also mentioned that earlier, that it's not just happening now. It's always been there. Um, I think I've, I've read um, a study that talks about like one in 10 um, Asian Americans say that violence against them in the U.S., you know, like it's increasing, but then nearly half has also experienced some type of incident, right, tied to their racial or ethnic um, background, um, but not always after the pandemic so they've they've always been there right they might either either it's like a microaggression and stuff like oh you 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 should be good at math like you know what's going on so like that the stereotypes of you know like asians should be good at math um or just kind of comments about i guess in their eyes stuff like that so it's, it's always been happening i mean like for asian females i think many probably can relate to the idea of being catcalled on the street being called China doll, um, you know, that's, again, that's, those are microaggressions that have always been happening. Media hasn't really caught on, I think, until really recently, when there are all these really explicit uh, type of, like, physical assault. So it's unfortunate. You were bringing up that this has been going on for a long time, which is obviously true. I think it would be useful for our listeners if we provide additional context to that in terms of the first immigrations of, of Asian Americans and, and even how Asian Americans were oppressed during the the construction of the of the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, Mr. Kramer, I don't know if, if our history guru wanted to uh, jump in and provide some context there, but I think it would be very helpful to map out how long oppression is, has gone on for this community. You know, one of the things that we were talking about in the, in the when we were prepping for, for, for this episode was the idea that Every immigrant group that has come to this country has has been met with basically the same hatred, right? But it's but it's been so unique for each group too. So there are so many similarities when when Asians first started immigrating to this country, and I, and and I I would throw out that you know pretty much everybody after the Mayflower was was met with some sort of like hey this is our land first you know kind of thing. Um, I know that's an exaggeration, but it's it's pretty close. So when when Asian Americans first started coming, they they were met with all of the same same hatred, all the same kind of things that other immigrants. You're taking our jobs. You're driving down wages. Um, you don't speak the language. You look different. You're a different color. You know. So all of those things, I think, um, are, are very common to all of all of the experience, right? So. When Asian Americans started coming at the end of the 1800s and that and that first wave of immigration, there was there was there was certainly tremendous hatred. There was this concept of stealing jobs, which has always been a myth. You know, you're not stealing jobs; you're doing jobs that Americans who are here don't want to do. You know, so only immigrant, the only people that are going to do these jobs are the immigrant population, or you know, even unemployed people. Don't do it. 
So, um, so that that big myth is is always there. So the transcontinental railroad, absolutely, there was tremendous amounts of um, tremendous amounts of hatred there. The yellow peril is the is the term that you know was being thrown around at the time. Um, but their experience also was very different. You know, I was I was obviously doing doing a lot of reading on this. One, one thing that I found was what I thought was was very strange that was unique was not just that the culture was so different when certainly the Asian culture and, and certainly the Chinese that were coming here, the culture was so different and foreign, the food was foreign, the clothing was foreign, but there was, there was a, a good deal of homophobia directed towards Asian men uh, because Asian men would come over and do things that were traditionally a woman's role in America, the cooking, opening up cleaners, doing the washing and doing things like that. Um, so there was even even that misunderstanding ran so deep that it wasn't just this immigrant population. There was so much more layered to it. Right. So, yes. So certainly um, those sorts of things happen and those sorts of things have always been there. And and they actually still remain today, which I was which I was a little surprised to see. But um, but in my readings and everything, it's it's some of these themes all of these themes have stuck. I was surprised to see uh, some of the other ones that had. So That's interesting that you brought up uh, the yellow peril because I've heard of it, but uh, to be honest, I never really um, dove into the literature about it. And because of this podcast, um, you know, I, I, I did a little bit more research and I find it really interesting. Um, not that it's a great thing that happened, but, you know, just like, you know, the, the association within history, um, you know, how these things, these stereotypes against Asians evolved over time, um, because both Yellow Peril and uh, the model the minority myth, they work hand in hand. So some scholars have talked about how they are not like kind of like at both ends of one, you know, I guess uh, polar ends of two spectrum, but it's like a circular thing. It's kind of like yin yang um, in a way that, you know, there's this ambivalence that kind of built against Asian. So there's the Mala minority when, when I guess the uh, white supremacy wanted to use that to um, bear in mind this, this Mala minority myth really started because of an article um, in the New York Times we're talking about New York Times and we're not talking about really obscure, you know, like like uh, academic journal that nobody reads. We're talking about like widely read New York Times and magazine article. And that had took place in the 60s. And it was at the same time when civil civil rights movement took place. Right. So there were a lot of protests, um, you know, relating to, you know, black Americans um, really wanting to, um, you know, you know, ending the segregation and really wanting to, um, you know, establish you know, their rights. And so this model minority myth, just, you know, this, this theory just kind of, you know, kind of came upon so conveniently to, to, you know, to kind of say that, oh, look at, the, look at these Japanese Americans, you know, they are so, uh, they, they're so quiet and they work diligently and look at where they are, you know, um, they never really needed any support. And they, and that was at the time when they wanted to end, um, I think it was like a Reagan um, uh, period when they wanted to end, um, uh, you know, the, the affirmative action, et cetera. So like, you know, they really kind of used that 
just really pitting the minority groups against each other. And then, you know, white, <laughs> white supremacists can then say, well, you know, like, you know, look, look, you know, we don't really have to, you know, do anything about it. Look at, look at how these uh, Asian Americans are doing. And, you know, but then the yellow perils will always kind of like paint uh, Asian Americans as these kind of oh, taking away jobs uh, or, you know, the, the emotion, less emotional or less social uh, beings. There's always a language barrier, but it's just because, you know, a lot of times, I guess, um, the mainstream has a, they, they have a hard time understanding Asian American culture, right? Everything is like the perpetual foreigner, right? So it's like those things kind of like always in history kind of go hand in hand. So like, you know, we want to promote them when we want to, but at the same time, you know, when they're getting too strong, oh no, 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 they're taking away our jobs. So, you know, then, then we have to downplay, you know, so. I'm happy uh, Jane brought up the dynamic of how the model minority myth was constructed. I think the most important aspect of it when you're talking about how the Asian American community is seen or any minority community is seen is that the greater power structure is able to create narratives about other minority groups. Like if there was no such thing as white supremacy, then it's like a parental role. Like, oh, this is the good child. This is the bad child. And that's the whole problem in and of itself. So I, I kind of just wanted to highlight that aspect of it. Um, and I also thought it was very ironic that in that article that we were talking about, we, that it specifically referenced Japanese Americans. Now we'll get into all the problems with the model minority myth, but one of them overrepresentation, um, and specific to the Japanese community, it doesn't take into consideration Japanese internment, um, and how the Japanese people dealt with being interned in those camps in terms of putting all their eggs into education. And it leaves out the part that the government gave the Japanese population reparations after uh, internment. Yeah, I was so I was I just wanted to make to right to I guess reiterate or highlight the fact that um, what what Jane mentioned, which is really really important for our listeners to to like to take from from this, is that right if there was no if white supremacy was not a thing or what did not exist then these we we wouldn't be talking about these things like the point here is that this 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 structure um is being upheld by creating these myths and and narratives which are created like all of it and i say it almost every podcast when we talk about these topics that it's not it's intentional and that these things don't just happen because this is the way people think or they don't just happen because it's convenient like it's intentionally it's intentionally um, narrated. It's intentionally um, evolving, and it's 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 happening for a reason. And so, like the this right. So, like Jane mentioned, the in one in one scenario where she talked about mentioning the civil rights movement, in one scenario, you know, up quote unquote upholding or uplifting um, this this particular minority group helps to again, uphold white supremacy by taking tang on another minority group. When in reality, we're all in the same sinking boat, if you think about it, in terms of white supremacy. And so it's really, really important that our listeners um, like consider that. And, and even in your own experiences, again, Asian, the term Asian is a, a humongous umbrella. There's, there's different groups. They're not all the same. Um, they have different experiences, lifestyles, traditions, etc. And so when you think about these myths or when these myths are brought up and remember why they're, why the myth exists in the first place and what has caused it to evolve in the way that it has over these decades. Absolutely. There's 48 countries in Asia. So when you're saying 
Asians are very successful in American society. Who exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about Chinese Americans? Are we talking about Japanese Americans? Are we talking about Hmong Americans? Are we talking about Vietnamese Americans? And all of those groups have starkly different experiences within the country. So I, I think that overgeneralization is probably the first aspect of dismantling that whole model minority argument. So I'm, I'm happy we're bringing it up now. Yeah, I want to mention that there are, um, you know, journal articles that taught, actually, you know, they did, they did a, a lot of times these kind of data are hard to come by just because the way that a lot of um, <clears throat> questionnaires um, or, or data are collected, they don't separate Asian groups, right? So people only have that one box to check off and that's Asian, you know? Um, and so, but, you know, there are researchers who manage to dig deeper into the data and then they found out that, well, if you actually look at certain groups within the whole, you know, umbrella Asian group, there are some groups that actually um, uh, have academic uh, outcomes that are way below not only other minority, but like, you know, also, also um, white and, and kind of like in terms of their academic outcomes, they're actually at the, the lowest. So you, you could, and it was, I, I believe what, what I saw was like a graph of basically outlining different um, Asian groups from different origins. And there's a huge variety in terms of like, you know, how, how their um, outcomes have, have penned out. So really, the generaliz generalization really does not help. And even within, if you talk about American way of categorizing different Asians versus the Canadian way is also different. So America tend to group um, uh, East Asian, like people from um, um, China, Taiwan, um, you know, J Japan into a kind of, or, or Korea into one group. And then um, there's like um, uh, Southeast, so, so Indian, um, Thai, Lao, you know, one group, um, but then Canadian kind of like separate those in a different way. So that ambiguity also kind of makes it hard to um, interpret uh, a lot of the, the existing data within the, within the already very small amount of research that are dedicated to that. Speaking of, um, speaking of small research, we pulled some stats about the economic disparity. Now, forgive us since these, um, as you said, they're not recorded as frequently as they should. So I have an example from 2015, but uh, in that year, Filipino Americans had 6.7% poverty rate, which was lower than white Americans. In that same year, Cambodians and Pakistanis had around 18%. Bangladeshi and Hmong Americans had around 26 and 28% respectively, which, is, which was higher than both Latinx communities and the black community. Similar to educational disparities, there are also financial disparities. Taking the year 2013 for an example, Asian Americans had the highest graduation rate of any other racial group at 53%. Within that same overstated group, 43% of second generation Cambodian and Laotian Americans only had a high school diploma or less compared to 6% of second generation Chinese Americans. In the same year, 17% of Pacific Islanders, 14% of Cambodians, and 13% of Laotian and Hmong Americans possessed four-year degrees in comparison to 22% Black and Hispanic people holding four-year degrees. So again, it's like when, when we're talking about Asians are, are quote unquote doing the best, who exactly are we, 
are we talking about? You know. So I, I, I would say that um, the experiences and the timing of of the mass migrations or the mass immigrations into this country from the different places plays a plays a huge role in that. You know, um, Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans have been coming here since the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. And then you have some other groups, you know, the Vietnamese started coming over in the 80s, and then other groups didn't start coming over until the 90s. Um, so that that also plays a huge role in how long the big groups of people or the waves of immigration that have come to this country and where they sit class-wise or social, socially-wise. So, so it just adds to the point that all the experiences are very different, you know? So if, if, if Chinese Americans have been here you know, over 130 years now, and and uh, Vietnamese have only been here for the last 40 years. Well, there's there's a big gap there. There's there's a lot of there's a lot to do with first generation, second generation, third generation opportunities, and certainly the white power structure that that we have does a tremendous job in keeping those people where they want them to be. Right. So you guys were mentioning before. Um, it, it dawned on me what what kind of goes on in in the schools because Jane was uh, Jane was referring to it. We have ESL programs. They call them ELL, English Language Learners. You know, so it's no longer English as a second language. Now we call it in English Language Learners. You know, which is really just a catch-all for anybody who comes to the country and doesn't. You know, English isn't their first language, but they're so heavily dominated by Spanish speakers that we don't have a we don't have a system in place in public school that's going to that's going to um really lend itself to all of the different languages that are coming we try we do i mean i'm not a you know i'm not a huge defender of it but th- there are things in place where it's supposed to be english immersion and things like that but it's so heavily 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 focused on the Spanish speakers, if you look around our our ELL department, it's it's heavily dominated by by Spanish speakers, and I think the assumption is like, oh well, the Asian Americans they're going to pick up the language real quick to shove them into a mainstream, I, you know, however that works. But um, but I would say the experience coming over have, plays a huge role in the statistics that you mentioned, Malik. It's so interesting how this myth is 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 so is so widely believed by so many people because it's like you're you're trying to. You're trying to say that this group of people, which again, what group are we talking about, right? But you're trying to talk about this group of people being independent and diligent and and able to pull themselves up and able to and don't need any resources, don't need any help. And then it's like, and at the same time, it's like you provide you provide little to no resources, little to no opportunity, little to you know you you don't grant the same access, and then try but then try to still say that this group is a quote unquote model minority. And it's like, how are you saying that they're, that this, how are you spewing these racist, hateful, um, this, these racist, hateful ideals and ideologies on a group of people that you also in the same breath feel as the, is the, is the model for how every other minority group should be. It just, it's so, it just makes zero sense in my head. And I don't understand how it makes any type of sense in anyone else's head. I just want to point that out. Yeah, I think, so I think uh, both Sydney and, and Steve brought up a really good point about, um, you know, how the, the system is set up um, in terms of like, we don't really provide the, the help of resources. Well, one of the 
problems is that there really is a lack of personnel who is you know who is able to help um asian because i think i think we all know that research has shown us that um, bilingual education is the best for all English learners. And so there is there are a lot of Spanish um, uh, resources provided in terms of like, you know, bilingual Spanish English programs um, and even in terms of the population of um, school psychologists who are bilingual, they're mostly Spanish speaking uh, individuals. Unfortunately, people like me, <laughs> there aren't that many. Um, um, so you know, one example is, um, you know, when I uh, was doing my, um, so I'm still like doing my doctoral degree and um, in within one of my training, it was um, assessment uh, practicum. So my job was to uh, perform the assessment, obviously, because I have a language ability, I was able to do a bilingual assessment with the child. Um, and, you know, I, I developed really good rapport with the parent and the parent doesn't speak English. And so for her, it's like such, you know, so, so much help for her to be able to converse um, with the eval evaluator and then just, you know, try to get, um, you know, as much uh, recommendation or help as possible. At the same time, you know, like she was wondering, okay, so if my child um, has ADHD, you know, what, what, what can I do? Is there, are there therapies um, uh, available? Cause she, you know, like, like a lot, many parents are, they, they, they kind of uh, are hesitant about, um, you know, giving uh, the child uh, medication. And I understand that at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, what would help really with um, ADHD sometimes it could be parent training um, because the parent needs to know like it's it's a neurodevelopmental disorder that you can't you can't just tell the child focus <laughs> this doesn't help right so the brain is a little differently so um, a lot of times it's really teaching both the child and the parent in terms of how to cope with uh, the disorder and I try to look for Mandarin speaking therapists who you know who can provide these ADHD uh, therapy could not find it I went on like listserv um, I went on uh, some Facebook group no nobody was able to point me to anyone um, I'm sure like you know maybe if I look harder you know I, I maybe um, but it's just really difficult I think for the Asian community to access um, you know a lot of mental health and even be in terms of being evaluated in a fair way um not being compared to white monolingual um uh, peers right so that's kind of like my research my personal research interest um so there's you know the lack of pers personnel really that can help them that's like one problem and then I, th I think steve also mentioned another interesting thing about generation so in uh, my um former supervisor from uh, york university his research with his some of his graduate students um for example uh Paget, um Paget, i'm not sure but um they talk about how it's interesting the model minority myth actually for the first generation somehow they were associated with like endorsing these kind of positive stereotypes relating to competency or, uh, you know, being uh, productive, um, uh, capable, that those kind of positive stereotypes help with, or they're associated with um, better uh, psychological kind of variables um, in terms of like self-esteem, um, you know, so buying to that somehow it's good. But then if you look into the data for the second generation, um, so children of immigrants, 
it actually um, was negatively associated with like, you know, like um, self-esteem and, and, and kind of psychological adjustment variables in terms of like, you know, some of the negative um, stereotypes um, in terms of like, oh, Asian being socially awkward, um, whatnot. So that, or even the competency, endorsing more of those belief that, you know, oh, I'm Asian, I'm Asian, I'm supposed to be, you know, highly competent in terms of school, et cetera, actually leads to lower self-esteem. So it's almost like, um, kind of like the, the adverse effect of, of, of something supposedly could be like, you know, positive. Um, and then some scholars also kind of uh, attribute how it's, it may affect second generation more in terms of those model minority myth because um, they have been in the in, in you know within the environment and within the uh, you know kind of hanging out with other you know um, white peers they, so they know those stereotypes better both positive and negative whereas maybe first generation kind of like they may not know too too much and so on the surface some of these things seem good seem positive okay you know so they they, they may buy into it and may it may help them in some ways um but it's it's interesting to know that even this you know same kind of stereotypes can impact first versus a second generation differently i think you uh you bring up a really good point well all three of you did in terms of the stereotypes i think it's important to not only bring up stereotypes but to tie the loop into how stereotypes have real world implications. So Mr. Kramer brought up education, for example, because Asian students have a stereotype of academic success, um, that translates to those resources not being being there and, and they're not they don't have access to the resources that they need if there's educational barriers or language barriers. Again, you're bringing up how second generation Asian Americans have the positive stereotypes and they're more in tune with the negative stereotypes, I think we have to touch on the fact that directly influences the career paths that many Asian Americans choose. There is a stark lack of Asian American representation in humanitarian degrees and the arts. And I, it just makes me think in terms of you were, you were looking for psychologists that speak Mandarin, the lack thereof or the lack of access to those resources are, are a direct result of those stereotypes pushing many Asian American students to pursue maths and sciences, whether they want to or excel at them or not. Stereotypes have real world consequences. It's not just a matter of hurting someone's feelings or being politically correct. Stereotypes have contributed to disparities in every political, social, or economic institution you can think of. Yeah, I think... Um... You know, there's definitely the um, within the culture. Um, I think among like Indian or, 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 or Chinese culture, definitely there's that you know that stereotype of tiger mom, right? Um, uh, that the and even when I was little, like I I, I you know grew up like um, listening to like uh, my elders telling me, you know, you need to go to medical field like that 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 you know i think it, their concern about upward mobility was so it's so like prominent that you know they all they think and think about is if you become a doctor you'll be fine you'll be set for life um you know lawyers like just also those prestigious um uh type of, of career um whereas definitely in terms of like you know arts and humanities um they're not very encouraged and i remember reading um another uh, researcher um Psychology in the psychology field about how second generation um, 
Asian American, um, she was highly discouraged um, to, you know, go into to, um, into. I think I think she was trying to take um, humanitarian studies, um, and so not and not just from her parents, from the school guidance counselor, from the school principal. She was asked to, you know, go to the principal's office, and her principal was like telling her that, um, you know, you are one of our first um, student who. Uh, that was back in the day, I guess, like maybe around 60s or 70s, like, you know, one of our first um, students who are different, like, she said that, like, like um, who are different, who is like, different from uh, other students, and we have to set a good example. Um, it's just, like, you know, outrageous things like that. So definitely there is that push or pressure for uh, many minorities to go into those fields and then leaving, you know, this, 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 again, void in terms of um, some of the professions. And I think there is also lack of representation within politics, which kind of affect how policies are made, how laws are made. Um, and so I think, yeah, those are, are good, like are important um, things kind of like contributed to, I guess, the status quo. Uh, I was just gonna. I found this, the stat that I think Malik was um, talking about uh, the 2009 consensus. 2009 census, excuse me, that revealed that only 15% of Asian degree holders majored in um, the arts or humanities, which is less than any other racial group in our country. Um, but I was gonna ask Jane, do you would you agree or do you think that um, this so that the what you were just discussing as far as you know um, the elders in your community or on the older generations of uh, these Asian groups having that um, having that notion that you know or pushing for the those typical those types of career paths um, has anything to do maybe subconsciously because you know you said that the older generations don't tend to um, or you know they don't compared to the second generation of um, Asian Americans may not have experienced or may not be aware of as many of these stereotypes that we've talked that we talk about or as many of these, um, you know, these things that are going on now. But do you think that those beliefs maybe subconsciously come from wanting to uphold the positive stereotypes you're talking about or wanting to uh, uphold the model image of their group? So you know, it's kind of like that's what causes the push towards these, you know, like the other career paths not seen as, you know, not seen as, as prestigious and not perceived to be as, you know, um, important maybe. I think for sure there's definitely the pressure from um, older generation um, and also within themselves, right? They also kind of, you know, want to advance in terms of social hierarchy. Um, and, and it's, it's you know, it's probably easy to picture the, you know, certain fields, um, those particularly like in, in, in law or, or, or um, in medical fields that, you know, those would be kind of like tickets to kind of get them out of, right, uh, you know, lower social hierarchy. Um, at the same time, I also believe language could come into, you know, um, kind of come into play in terms of the decision-making process. Um, I remember, well, because I came to, I, I, I moved to Canada when I was 14. And so um, even though I did get bilingual um, education in Hong Kong, um, 
I was certainly nowhere this fluent in terms of like oral written English. And so when I first arrived in, in Canada, I was, you know, at the time when I was supposed to oh, quickly decide what, what um, profession I'm going to go into, what major, you know. And uh, I remember, you know, being told by, you know, guidance counselor or my mom that um, you should go into something that's more skill based so then you can avoid writing a lot of essays because, you know, like there are, for example, psychology is a very language, like hot uh, subject that um, demands a lot of language, um, you know, capacity. Right. And so. Um, I remember that fact, you know, being factored into my career choice. Also, um, I was thinking, okay, well, I, I do, I do like interior design. Uh, maybe I can do that. Um, maybe someday I'll still <laughs> want to do that. Uh, but yeah, I think that the, the not having enough confidence to pursue language-heavy subjects that could also be one area that you know can be a barrier for um, um, individuals from the you know Asian community to kind of get into those uh, fields that are language-based, such as arts and humanities. The thing is, when I took <laughs> uh, first-year psychology uh, class, and I was just completely fascinated by you know the brain, and and um, and I worked really, really hard. I think within the first year. You know, arriving in Canada, where like I, I, you know, I forced myself to uh, read newspaper articles out loud to increase my fluency, and I forced myself to think in English, forced myself to uh, associate with um, Canadian-born Chinese to practice more. You know, put in a lot of like effort to like try to kind of overcome the, like the language. Um, um, I guess the the deficit, I guess, uh, in a way, um, or or you know or because English wasn't, you know, wasn't my native language. Uh, at the same time, a lot of English learners do not have that kind of, you know, um, ability to, to think, oh, I'm, this is what I need to do. Like, you know, somehow I was fortunate enough to, to be able to get into psychology. But I think without the help that, you know, Steve was talking about, um, or, or Sydney, you also mentioned, in the school, um, it's going to be tough for, you know, like, for, for Chinese to, or, or English learners to even get into that type of field. Um, but it's interesting because what I'm seeing now is a lot of second generation uh, English learners who actually can speak fluent English because they grew up here, right? They were born here. Um, and so you, you listen to them, they're fine in terms of oral language, conversational language. The problem is because they were spoken to in Chinese or in Mandarin or whatever Asian language they, they, they were spoken to at home. So they started really learning English at maybe the time when they start preschool. So like, you know, maybe two to three. So they are kind of lagging behind compared to their white um, peers. And so teachers may say, oh, he speaks like he's fine. He's fluent. Like he's, I don't know why he's just like not doing well, you know, you know, and, uh, he just can't write. I don't know why. Maybe he doesn't want to, but it's sometimes it's not about whether the child wants to or not. You know, they haven't developed their, their because academic uh, um, type of language proficiency has to kind of develop after you have really, you know, like um, developed your, your basic interpersonal kind of conversational type of, of, of language. If you start it late, then your um, academic language is going to emerge later compared to your white peers so like there's the disadvantage that's like you know happening with second generation um 
uh, immigrants or Asian immigrants. So yeah, that's another area where kind of factor into why we don't see a lot of Asians in those fields. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast. If you're enjoying this episode and would like to know how our dialogue concluded, be sure to tune into part two of Is There Really a Model Minority? Until next time, peace.